0: Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Here we go. Well, we're going to turn to John uh, chapter 16 tonight. And uh, those of you who will watch this later on after it gets posted at home, John chapter 16. We're going to cover verses 1 through 15. And I want to remind you all of something before we begin, because... It's just going to remind us of this, and it's very important, I think, in the introduction, and that is that um, I think most of us know, we've heard that the chapter breaks, you know, chapter this, chapter that, they are not part of the original autograph or manuscripts, correct? We know that, right? And and the verses, the number of verses, they're not part of the original. And when I say the autograph, there's a distinction between the autograph and the manuscripts. When you say the autograph, you hear of that word, The the original autograph is actually, what they mean by that, the scholars, is that are the actual scrolls that the disciple John or whoever it was actually wrote himself. Do we have any of those? The answer is no, we don't have any of those. What we have are the manuscripts. We have early, early, early copies of the original autograph, and that's what we have. Now, these markers, these chapter breaks and verse markers, when they started was, um, they came in, let's see, the chapters came in, number of chapters, they came in 1227 A.D. Now, the verse markers, they came in 1555 A.D. Now, they brought them in, and I think it's pretty obvious why they brought them in, right? It helps us find things. If I say, turn to this chapter, this verse, boy, you could turn a lot faster, and it just really helps things out. So there's a positive to it. Question, is there a negative to it? Yeah, there's a negative to it. Do you know what the negative is? Isn't it true that, here's a negative, isn't it true that when you read a chapter, you kind of don't think that the last chapter connects to this chapter that you're in because you have a chapter break and you almost like you're breaking up everything into pieces when you can't break it up into pieces? It's one long letter, one long scroll that you're reading. And so you've always got to remember that, otherwise you forget what happened in the previous chapter and you don't connect it. So as we begin tonight, we're going to see something very interesting, I should say. It's just pretty obvious how they connect. Chapter 15, we left off at. Chapter 16, we start in. And let me just state that um, in these chapters, we see how um, there's going to be a lot of hostility towards Christians, is there not? And I think... And you heard me say it on Sunday and I say, I think I say it pretty regularly now the way things are but it inches closer and closer more hostility towards the Christian belief and the Christian faith and what we stand for and our morals. Anybody say amen to that one right there? I think we see those things very much. But there's a hostility. And so here we go. Number one, I only have three points and then some subpoints tonight, but I want I want to say that to connect because chapter 15 ends, and there's a lot of hostility. They're gonna hate you, they're gonna hate us because they hated Jesus. And now in chapter 16, we're gonna see some similarity at the very beginning. They connect. Now, point one is this: in times of global and civil upheaval, Be assured that God is sovereign, is he not? God is in control, is he not? When there's upheaval, when sin does abound, so much more does grace abound, does it not? So we know our God is in control no matter what's going on. Now chapter 16, look what Jesus says uh, in verse 1 and verse 2. He says this, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Is that wild or what? An hour is coming like that. Now hold that thought there. I want to get into uh, into this idea here because in here, he's telling them things ahead of time so that they will know when it happens. It's a confidence giver in their life that you know what's coming. Now, in the midst of any upheaval, global, civil, know that God is is always in control and God is sovereign. Now, let me give you some, uh, uh, some biblical example of this. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, check it out. Old Testament, Jeremiah 29. And when you're in Jeremiah 29, say, I'm there. Okay, that's fast, okay. Jeremiah 29. How many know Jeremiah 29? You know exactly what those... You know some of the verses. They're very popular verses when I say Jeremiah 29. But I want to read verse 10 through 14. Remember, in the middle of... In times of global and civil upheaval, know that God is sovereign. Jeremiah 29 is a great example of this. We're going to read verse 10 through verse 14. Watch what it says. And by the way, just for the sake of background... Jeremiah is, um, he's prophesying in, from Jerusalem. He is a contemporary, meaning at the same time, Ezekiel is prophesying in Babylon. He's already over there, and they're prophesying pretty much the same things at the same time from two different locations. So, verse 10 through 14 says this. It says, For thus says the Lord when 70 years have been completed for Babylon I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. What has God just prophetically stated before it ever happened what is he telling the Jews in Babylon that have been deported? They're going to be what? They're going to be brought back. How long will they stay in Babylon? 70 years. That's right. So this is already prophetically written. This is has been written down before anything has ever happened. Verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for what? Welfare and not for calamity to give you a what? A future and a and a hope. That's a good thing. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into what? Into exile. Okay. God is in control no matter what it looks like. Correct? Correct. Yes, okay. These verses, very, very important. Now, put yourself in the place of of Daniel. Daniel hasn't read, he hasn't really looked this up yet at the moment. He's going to be deported. How old is Daniel thereabouts when he's deported? Do you remember? He's a teenager. Now, when Daniel's deported to Babylon, do you think it caused him a little bit of strife and turmoil? you better believe it. You're a teenage kid. You're being taken from home. All the way to Babylon, this nation, 800 to 1,000 miles away, which in that time, it might as well be on the other side of the moon. It's so far away. And you're taken from your family. So there's a lot of inner strife and turmoil. So you have to understand that he's feeling a lot of things. But you also have to flip that coin because Daniel will read the scroll of Jeremiah. He will deduce things. And you even read in the book of Daniel, he does deduce things. He gives the great prophecies. And so Daniel realizes, he starts doing the math. We're going to be here 70 years. Jeremiah said that. And he starts doing the math. And he knows the time is getting closer and closer for them to go back home, which happens under the Persian Empire around 540-something, 550 uh, B.C. About 50,000 of them are allowed to go back home after the deportation, three deportations, but the main one in 586, uh, thereabouts, B.C. So now we know that something has been written. Something has been predicted. And that written thing and that prediction gives them the peace knowing that God is sovereign. No matter what I'm in, no matter what God is, what's going on, God is in control. Is he not? As we talked right before we began, Peter had peace. Did he not? Because he knew God had spoken something, something was stated by God, and you can trust that thing, and therefore it gives you confidence. Think about this one right here, think about God's in control, and God's word, and what God says is very important. Back in Numbers 13, remember the story when uh, Moses gets them to uh, uh, the place there at the Jordan River? They're not crossing yet, but Moses sends out spies, remember? Remember? He sends out 12 spies. They come back. What did two spies say when they spied out the land? What do they say? The two. Two of them say, it's great. Man, land flowing milk and honey, man. We could take this land by all means. Let's go get it. But what do 10 of them say? No way, Jose. Uh-uh. We can't do it. In fact, their words are this. We, when we saw the giants in the land, he said, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. And then they add, And we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes. That's pretty bad, huh? But not only am I a grasshopper in their eyes, looking at them, I'm a grasshopper in my own eyes. So they say, there's no way, even though it's a land flowing with milk and honey, there's no way. We're not going in. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't God say it was their land? Wasn't this the voice of God? Question. Didn't God bring them out of Egypt to go into this land? Isn't it true that God brings us out to bring us in? Yes, He does. He'll always bring you out to bring you in. And so they stand there, and two of them understand it. Prophetically, they know God said it. It's written. It doesn't matter what's reported. It does matter what's written, right? People can say all they want. People can say this. They can say that. But it, all that matters is what God says and what is written. So you go back to chapter 16 of John. Again, go back there again. And Jesus says in verse 1 and 2, He's telling them, This is what's going to happen. This is what's coming. And he's telling them this so they will have confidence as they travel in this world. Now, let's go to his statement. Look at verse 2 again. In verse 2 of John 16, what is the crazy statement that Jesus told them at the end of verse 2? He said, a moment, a time, a day is coming when they, when someone who kills you who kills a follower of Christ, will think they're doing what? Service for God. How many think that's kind of insane? But we see that, don't we? We even see that in our world today. But somebody's going to think when they kill you, they're offering service to God. I have a question for you. Did they see this soon after the resurrection? Yeah, we studied it so many weeks ago, remember? We talked about, who, who brought up Stephen beforehand in this? We're talking about Stephen, okay, Steve. Yeah, you brought up Stephen, remember? Okay, Stephen, remember that? Stephen's preaching the message. Remember, Stephen's a dynamic uh, deacon, right? Preaches the message, and then they start going like this. <laughs> remember their gnawing their, their teeth? Remember their gnawing their teeth? And they, and, what, and they pick up stones. What do they do to Stephen? They kill him. But wait a minute. Who is standing there guarding the coats? Saul. Who's Saul going to become? Paul. But he's Saul still. He's not a believer. What's his job? He's a Sanhedrin, but what's his job? Go find Christians, pull them out of the house, kill them. So question, as he's sitting there, he's the ringleader, stone the guy, stone Stephen for preaching Jesus and the resurrection and all these things, as Saul is standing there and this is happening... What do you think Saul is thinking about himself and God as Stephen is dying? I'm doing the will of God. I'm doing the will of God. As Stephen is dying, as Stephen is going down, he said, I'm doing the will of God. Jesus told him, the moment's coming when someone who's killing you will think that they are doing God's will. They're, they're serving God in the moment. They're pleasing God. And that's crazy, huh? You know, when, you, when you think about these things, you know, I get to talk to missionaries every so often as far as some of the bad stuff that goes on. And then I get to hear a lot of the good stuff that goes on. So I'm sitting there um, just to tell you, show you what's, what's happening in the world at times. This was probably about three or four years ago. And we have this missionary. You'll see the missionaries' names that we support monthly here. They're up on the... When you come to the doors here, they're, they're up there. The names are all up there. And they have the locations around the world they're at. Some of them do not have locations because if they are found out, they could lose their life in certain countries. So we cannot give the location of where that person's at. And I've talked with these people one-on-one. I always interview them in person... When we're going to pick them up as a missionary, but I'm talking to this one. His name is Alex Hanna. Alex Hanna is an older guy, real good guy, and uh, he was—he's Egyptian. Him and his wife, he was a doctor. His wife was a dentist. Okay, and in Egypt, he gets saved, and he gives up his practice, gives up everything, and he becomes a missionary for Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? But this guy. His strength of his ministry, and he does travel over there, but the strength of his ministry, he uses social media a lot. And he leads so many Muslims to Christ. It's incredible. So many Muslims, and they know he's a, he's a Jesus follower. So many Muslims, he'll be praying for them, and he'll give the testimony of how God uh, uh, interacted in their life and stuff like that. Well, he's telling me the story. We're sitting out here at Eastvale one day, and, and he said, I'll buy you lunch. I go, let's go, you know, but uh, anyway. <laughs> you want to buy me lunch, I'll go. But anyway, he's telling me, do you remember in Egypt, uh, there was that season, but there was that one moment in time where this group of terrorists, religious terrorists, they lined up a bunch of Christians on their knees and they beheaded them. Do anybody remember that? Okay. Those were Coptic Christians. Most of them, Coptic Christians. That's a strong Christian church in Egypt, the Coptics. They traced their lineage from um, Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross for Jesus. They, they traced themselves all the way back to him, that he went back and he started the Coptic church. Well, they'd behead people. So it was very dangerous in Egypt for Christians. Well, Alex Hanna told me that a moment came when the government got the police to track down and stop these religious terrorists from ever terrorizing church people in that country. They had to stop. They arrested them. They got these people and they stopped it. Then he said, when that happened, And he showed me the video. He said, look at this. The Coptic Christians were so happy and so thankful to God. They And it was a big place they were in. They had a 24-hour-long worship service, worshiping and thanking God for 24 straight hours, my friends. And he shows me the video. I go, that's enough, Alex. Two minutes, I trust you. 24. I got it, okay? But man, can you imagine being so thankful that you now are allowed to worship God, you don't have to worry about your life being taken because of a crazy, hostile world that Jesus said, they'll hate you because they hated me. Amen to that one? Now, look at verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when, they, when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now Jesus says, look guys, I'm going and I'm leaving. And the question that I think they would ask and maybe some of us would ask is, why is he going? Did he have to go? Now, look at verse 7. But I tell you the truth, as if Jesus has to say the truth, right? We trust him. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I what? That I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's to your advantage, guys, that I go. If I'm a disciple what would I probably say or think about what Jesus is saying to your advantage? I would think, no, it's not. It's to my advantage if you stay with us. But Jesus says, it's to your advantage if I go away. Why? Because if he goes away, who's coming? The Holy Spirit. Spirit. Who's called the what in that text? The helper. That's one of the uh, character qualities of the Holy Spirit, helper. I always like that because, um, remember when uh, in the creation record, When Adam is given a wife, she's called a help. Help me, that's right, help me. So, but the word help in there, helper, she's a helper, okay? And I like that, that the Holy Spirit's like that too. Because in the marriage, back in Genesis, the word help, and I think I've told this before, the word help, let me spell it so you don't get upset with me. It means sucker. It's not that you're a sucker for marrying the guy. It's not spelled the way. It's spelled S-U-C-C-O-U-R. Sucker. We use the term as an SOS, send out sucker. And sucker simply means help. Help. Some of you speak Spanish. You know there's a Spanish name called socorro. You ever heard that one before? That's the name help. It's sucker. It's help. And so here we have the Holy Spirit who is the helper. Now think about that with marriage and Adam and Eve. He's telling Adam, SOS, without her, you're sunk. You really need her. And so we could take that and say with the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, we're sunk, are we not? We really need the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, look at verse 7, he says, I'm going to go away. Like I said before, if I'm a disciple, I'd be going, no, you need to stay with us. So it leads me to, to point two, and that's this. Jesus had to go. He had to go. There was no choice. But the question is, why? Why does Jesus have to leave? Now, I'm going to jump a few verses, then I'm going to come back. But let me go to verse 10 very quickly and and try to look and and take springboard off the verse why he had to go. Look at verse 10. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. Okay, question, first one. Where did Jesus go? Where is he going? To To the Father. So he's got to go to the Father. Okay, so if he's going to go to the Father, now, next question. Was Jesus going to die? Real loud, yeah? Yeah. Okay, okay, good. You guys are right with me now. Question, bigger question. Was dying the entire goal? No, there's more to it. It was part of it. It's a big part, but it's not the entire goal. What's the entire goal of Him? What's the whole goal? Die. Resurrect. Ascend, exalted at the right hand of the Father. So he dies, he resurrects, he ascends, and he's exalted. That's the whole program right there. That is exactly what had to happen. So when he says, I got to go, I've got to leave, that's why he's got to go. It's very, very relevant. Now, let's let's try to put this in some kind of perspective. If just to take the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit was going to um, witness to somebody, let's say the Holy Spirit, but well, you can't see it's a spirit, but let's say you could see, because if, if he's going to witness to somebody, how would he do it? Okay, let me. Let me put, stumped you, right? Okay, good. Okay, okay. When Jesus walked the earth and he did all the miracles, did all the Jews say, "Oh, he's the Son of God"? Let's all follow him. It wasn't enough, was it? The miracles were not enough, and so something has to happen to convince people back then and now that He is the Son of God. And what is that? Death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation to the right hand of the Father. That has to happen. When He says, I've got to go, that's why He's got to go. And so you see, let's take Peter, take Peter. Sermon, he's preaching that sermon on the day of Pentecost, second chapter of Acts, correct? If you remember the sermon, let me ask a question. Did he sit there and preach the sermon on the mount to them? Did he? And the answer is what? The answer is no. Did he stand up and say, I'm gonna talk to you about Christian ethics and they all got saved. Did that happen? Did he write a book and say, Peter, you know, self-help, you know, and pass out the book and preach and they all got saved? No, they didn't. So what did he do? What did he say? What was it? Well, let's keep your finger here, marker here. Turn to your right. Look at Acts chapter 2. Now watch what Peter says within this great message that he preaches. This guy who was terrified just a few 50 days earlier, now watch what he's preaching right here in chapter 2 of Acts. Let's see what he says because in what he says is why Jesus had to go. Verse 31. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Every time you see a statement like witnesses, underline it. So you notice that your faith is not a, it's not just a, well, you just got to believe. No, it's an evidence-based faith. There are witnesses historical witnesses to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Every time you see it, mark it. Put a big mark there so you see. There's an evidence right there. Now, verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted, there it is again, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and what? And hear. Now, so what does Peter preach? He doesn't preach a Sermon on the Mount, doesn't preach self-help, doesn't give you Christian ethics. He preaches death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. And that's what we preach. And that's what changes people. Now, when you start saying that stuff, you better know what you're talking about, huh? You better be able to rip off some evidences historically of why you know the resurrection is an absolute truth. Now, let's go to Paul. Does Paul confirm this whole message as far as what saves people? yeah, turn to 1 Corinthians. Go to your right. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. You're going to go a few books over. Now watch Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, what he says. I love this chapter. There's so much in this chapter. Um, But um, in in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, look at verse 1 to, let's go to 5. I know it says 4 in your notes, but let's go to 5. In fact, let's go to 17. No, I'm just joking. Let's go to 5. It says, now I make known to you, brethren, The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are what? You're saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in, in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance. He's going to tell you, this is the most important thing, guys. This is it. What I also received... He goes, I'm going to tell you what I received. It's the most important thing, and that's this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appears to more people. So what is Paul saying is the most important thing? What's primary? What's the message? Death, resurrection, ascension. Exaltation. That's why Jesus had to go. Did He not? Did He not? Now let me show you again what I've told you before. But I know you're probably not going to remember. But you just got to remember, if you can, stuff like this. It's just cool little things. Look at verse. Look at verse um, three and four. It says, "For I deliver to you of first importance what I received. Here it comes that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised." on the third day, according to the Scriptures. You know what that is right there? It's called an early creed. It's called a creedal argument. Now, let me tell you what a creedal argument is. This creedal argument, did you notice there's a rhythm to it? Because before the Scriptures were ever written down, New Testament, they had to pass the truth on, didn't they? And they would have these statements, these creedal arguments where they could memorize very easily. And it's... A so, now, did I just black out there? Okay. I thought maybe I left for a while, but anyway. So, um, and sometimes I make myself laugh. but um, So, these creedal arguments, they predate, listen, they predate the written New Testament. They're before the written New Testament. New Testament scholars, both atheist and evangelical New Testament scholars will say these, these early creedal arguments, they're within the first six months, the first two years of the resurrection. They're passing these creedal arguments around. And this is how they're memorizing. This is how they're remembering stuff. So isn't that fascinating? And I got a bigger question for you. This is not even in my notes, but now I'm off on a tangent. <laughs> Did you notice in all the people he described who saw Jesus resurrected, are there any women in that one? Yes or no? There's none. But wait a minute, weren't the women in all four Gospels, which were written in different parts of the Mediterranean, so they could not confer with each other, weren't the women the first ones to the tomb? Weren't they the first eyewitnesses? But do you remember, do you remember what we said? This is one of your arguments for the historicity of the resurrection. Do you remember what we said in that time, in that culture, about a woman's testimony? Do you remember that? What was it? It wasn't worth much in a court of of law at all. It wasn't on par with a man's whatsoever. But that's, once again, the criteria of embarrassment, as we talked earlier, that they put that in there, and you would never, ever have put that in there if you're trying to prove a resurrection in that day. But it was the truth. Now, it's not in 1 Corinthians. They don't say anything about the women that Jesus appeared to. Why? Because in that culture... (laughs) A woman's testimony is not on par with a man. Where are they? Where is Paul? Who's he writing to? Greeks. Greeks. Remember, they're not going to take that. He knows if he puts that in there, guess what are they going to do? Ah, forget that. And he knows that. And so he doesn't go down that road, and he's going to put in here just the guys who saw it because he's trying to get into the hearts of these Greek people. Does that make sense? Now I'm way off my notes, so I gotta look back and see where I came from. Okay, okay. Now, okay. So we're what? what oh, let me. Can I give you one more? Yes. Because I got all these scribbles on my notes that I did, and it's it's dangerous. Okay. I, I think this chapter has real strong. Um, I could really veer off on how to defend your faith, you certain things, and we'll get more into that at, as we get to the end of it. But you ever hear people say, um, "There's no God"? I go, "How come?" Well, because there's so much suffering in the world. Ever hear that one? Yes. If there's a God, then why wouldn't he do something about this? Right? Okay. Let me just give you two thoughts on that very quick. And it's much more complex than what I'm going to give you. But here's something you could say. Let's go back to why he left. Why did Jesus go? Death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, right? Okay. People say, there's no God. There's too much suffering in the world. It doesn't do anything about it. So therefore, I'm an atheist. There's no God. The cross, death. Did Jesus enter into our suffering? You better believe it. He went to the cross. He entered into our suffering. So right there, you see, we have a God who does care about humanity. Now, will suffering, I'm, I'm acting like I'm talking to somebody, I'm trying to defend the faith and I'm staying calm. Will suffering, you know, because sometimes they get too hyped up. Will suffering always end in our life? No. Some of us will die in the midst of suffering. Okay. But wait a minute here. But not only did Jesus die, he what? He resurrected and he what? And he said, And so therefore he opens a door. He opens a door that when we die, we are delivered from all suffering. So not only does he step into our suffering, he delivers us eternally from suffering. And so we have this God that loves us enough to do that. And so therefore, I believe in this God who loves me, and in the midst of suffering, He's the only answer I have to the suffering. Does that make sense? Now, that's a very simplistic thing. It's a much more complex argument. I agree on that right there. But I'm just trying to give you thoughts that if you ever encounter such questions, you're able to at least give some response to people who are going to throw these cliches at you. And they are pretty much just cliches. Now, let's get back. In your notes, you have this title that says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning dot, dot, dot. Now, just real quick, the word convict, so you know. It means to show people their sins and summon them to repent. You're going to expose a person's sins, the Holy Spirit will, and then summon them to repent. Now, the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of three different things. In your notes, the first one is sin, right? Now we'll back up to verse 8 and 9 of chapter 16 of John. It says, And when he, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. <clears throat> Question, you just read it. What specific sin will the Holy Spirit convict people of? Unbelief. Unbelief. That's the primary job right there. He will convict people of their unbelief. They just refuse to believe in Jesus. And that's a sin, according to the scriptures here. Now, it moves on. Let's put more pieces together. The second bullet point is the Holy Spirit will not just convict of sin. He'll convict of righteousness. Now, look at verse 10 again. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Now, the big question is what righteousness? No, better question, whose righteousness? Jesus' righteousness. This is a better way to look at that right there. So, by virtue of his death, resurrection, raised up, ascended, exalted, we know, therefore, that he is who he said he is, therefore, he's righteous, right? And so, therefore, to refuse to believe in him is a sin. Does that make sense? No, does it make sense? I think John's building a very good case Now, the third thing he convicts is this, judgment. Judgment. We find it in his scriptures, verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. That's right. He's been judged. Question, who's the ruler of the world? That's right. It's not a hard one right there. He's the current ruler of the world. Really quick, uh, just so you believe me, go to way to your right, 1 John chapter 5. Well, it's way near the end. If you get to Revelation, you just went a little bit too far. Look at 1 John 5, just just to show it to you. And look at verse 19. When you're there, say I'm there. Okay, I'll give you two more seconds. Okay, now. Verse 19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, who is the power that this world lies in? Satan. Now, okay, so, so we got that. Okay, now. But he says the Holy Spirit will uh, go back to John 16. He says the ruler of this world has been judged. Well, judged. How has he been judged? How has Satan been judged? Well, he, did Satan attempt to discredit and destroy Jesus? Say yes. yes. He dies, but he resurrects. Who does that discredit? It's discredit Satan. It doesn't discredit Jesus at all. Now, did Satan, it was Satan morally defeated this time around? Because Adam morally lost the show, the first Adam. Jesus comes as the last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15, and he never sins. He's tempted, but never sins, and he overcomes. So does he judge, does he have moral victory over Satan? Say yes. He judges him right there. Does Jesus expose Satan as a liar? Yeah, because didn't Satan tell Adam and Eve, God's not for you. God's holding on on you. But here comes Jesus, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. And now we see, no, Jesus is for us. He has provided salvation for us. So Satan has been proven to be a liar. A liar. That's right. Now, now I'm going to try to piece all this thing together. Now. So we know Satan is the God of this world, Correct. It's his system. Um, When we say the world like that, it just means the system, the way it thinks, this world. It's controlled by him. It's a thinking process. Is he a liar? So if we grow up in the system and he's a liar, me and seven billion other people on this planet, that means if I've grown up in the system and he's a liar, that means I might believe some lies, huh? because I've been brought up in the system that's interesting to me if I know that if I understand that does that put a bit more emphasis on us to study the Bible yes. to read these things to wash the mind clean with the water of the word oh yeah you better believe it does you better believe it does now liar he's a liar let me let me tell some thoughts at you and I, gotta, I gotta move fast now um Just lie. Let me throw some lying thoughts at you, okay? Let's see if anybody. Because I've run into these. These are kind of typical things that I run into in counseling people. Okay. Anybody? Life's going good. Everything's going really good right now. Something bounds to go bad. (laughs) Anybody? Anybody? That happened. Raise your hand if that's where your mind goes. That's a lie you believe. That's a lie you believe. You're in a system, and that's one of its plays. It's a lie you believe. Okay, let me give another one. Oh, my mother died at 63. I'll probably die at 63. And you ever think stuff like that? I've run into people who think that. I remember. I remember the night my brother Bob died. Some of you remember my brother Bob, right? Some of you remember my brother Bob. Nine years. No, I'm sorry, 18 years older than me. But he died nine years ago. I remember the night that he died. And we're standing there, me and my surviving siblings, there's four of us left now. And my one sister says, well, there's, now there's four. And it's a weird thing when a sibling dies. It's just, it's like, God, you know, what happened? Where did the time go? And I remember it was either that night, I think it was that night, might have been next to but I think it was that night, this thought popped in my mind. Your brother died at 75. Your father died at 75. Jim, you're going to die at 75. And it popped in my head. I remember it. It was like vivid, man. But I had to tell myself, no, that's a lie. Now, I'm not dying at 75. Satan, you're not going to lie to me. I'm not going to do this. We're not going there. See, Satan tries all these little lies. I was counseling this lady one time. This, I always remember this particular counseling session because it was just like, I just I just can't believe a child would be told this by the by the father. But this lady, and she's a grown woman by now, and this is, I'm, I'm counseling. This is before the church started, and and I'm talking, lady, and she says this to me, because uh, I'm trying to lead her to salvation, right? Somebody had her come to me, and I'm in the church office at the church I was at before here, before I was, as I was getting ready to plant. and, uh, and the, the lady says, "When I bring up salvation, she goes, "Oh no, I can't be saved." I go, "What do you mean you can't be saved?" She goes, "No, my dad told me, "I'm too bad. I can't be saved." I go, well, say, what? My dad told me, "I'm too bad." I can't be saved. So I can't be saved. And she said, I can't be saved. And I remember I said, it's my favorite line that I tell people. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's just a lie. I, I, and I just had to talk her out of that lie and talk her out of that lie and I finally got to lead her to Christ because it was a lie. And Satan, and, and when you start talking to people and get in the nitty-gritty of life, you find out people believe a lot of lies. There's a lot of lies. Because why? We've grown up in a system, have we not? It's a system of lies. Now, hold on that for a second because we're going to get back to that and just, we'll finish off there. Look at chapter, verse 12 and 13. Jesus says, I have many more uh, things uh, to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Huh. I'd like to tell you more, but you can't take it yet. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, now he's moved from the... From Holy Spirit being called the helper, one of his qualities, now he's the spirit of truth. When he comes, he will guide you into what? All the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Real quick, and then I got to get into this again, but notice that there are limitations on them at this moment. The one limitation is time and the other limitation is ability. Why is there a limitation on time as far as them receiving truth? Why? Because they've left the Last Supper and they're walking at night along the south side of Jerusalem going down the Kidron Valley and they're going up the Mount of Olives. What's going to happen to the Mount of Olives? He's going to get arrested. They're going to take him. So does Jesus have a lot of time left? No, they have a short amount of time. He says, I can't tell you anymore because there's not a lot of time left. But the other part is, I can't tell you a lot because you don't have the ability. It's not that they're dense. It's that they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And when He comes, He'll guide them into all truth. And He'll recollect all these things back into their mind for them. So He's letting them know these are some things that are just like right now, but they will change in a bit. Now, third point, and this is this one. The Holy Spirit is not an independent source of truth. Now that may shock you, but let me give you the, the, the truth behind that statement. The Holy Spirit is not an independent source of truth. Look at verse 13, 14, 15. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak. So, in other words, you're going to hear somebody, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine, is Jesus speaking, and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Okay. The Holy Spirit is going to guide us and lead us into all truth, correct? But what he teaches us, he got it from somebody else, didn't he? That's what he says right there. Now, Who did he get it from? He got it from Jesus, verse 14. Now, okay, but Jesus, he got it from somebody else too. Did you know that? If you don't believe me, go back to look at chapter 14 real quick. Look at chapter 14, just real quick. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does the works. He says, I don't speak on my own. I I get this stuff from the the Father. We're we're in this together. So you see this whole, uh, you you see it right there. Now, here's what I like about that. Let me me try to put this all together for you tonight. Let's go back to sharing faith. Because I think defending our faith and sharing it and being able to give answers is vital. It's vital today. You know what I like? I love the fact when I get to share, when the opportunity comes and I get to share with somebody or just share, period, that um, I get to tell the truth from God's word. What I like about that, one of the things I like about that, I didn't come up with it. I didn't make it up. When I stand up and trust me, some people don't like it, but I'll never back off it. When I talk about, you know, certain sins and certain things, when I stand up and talk about homosexuality or abortion or transgenderism, or I talk about lying and gossiping and adultery, premarital sex and all the things, some people don't like it and they ain't coming back. But I know I'm rattling in their head now. Like I said on Sunday, my, my son said, I'm in your head, I'm in your head. Well, now I know the Holy Spirit's in their head, right? But I know when I say these things, and when I stand up for it, I didn't come up with it. Because if you knew me before as a Christian, I would have probably said, oh, whatever. But once I became a Christian, and I got God's Word, well, I'm not sharing, quote, what I feel or what I think. Do you hear what I just said? I'm not sharing what I feel or what I think. Now, when you are in a conversation with somebody and you're sharing faith, and standing up for your faith, listen. Be a listener. Listen to the way they say it. Listen to how they say it. Very important that you catch the words they're saying, because I guarantee you that the basis for what they believe, they're going to say something like, well, I feel and I think. When I hear something like that, and even if I don't, I will ask the person, these are very important questions, can you give me your basis, your moral basis, or even some scientific basis for what you just stated that you believe? Remember, if they state it, it's not my burden of proof to challenge it. It's their burden of proof to defend it. They're the one who believes it, right? So you listen close, what they feel, what they think. And I'm listening for those things because I want to know what's the foundation for what you believe. And then, and now, now remember, I, I, I scribble everywhere. Okay, just remember that. So I'm trying to stay with... Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> in... Go back to system. In the system, the God of this world has a, We're in a system, right? Okay. So when you're dialoguing with somebody, just remember, that system has systems. As has systems of statements, does it not? Don't you hear all the cliches out there? It's just systems of statements. That's all it is. One of the statements that you may run into as you're dialoguing with somebody and they're challenging things, they may finally tell you something like, well, that's your truth. You ever heard that one? They say, I have my truth, they'll say. What would you say to that? You know what I'd say? Trying to be a smart mouth, but not? I'd say, do you have your own math too? And I'm not trying to be, it is funny, but I'm not trying to be a jokester. But I'm just trying to be a smart mouth. No, I'm not. Because I want to get logic in their head. Because if they say I have my truth, then they must have their own math. But wait a minute. So they're saying, what they're really saying is they don't have absolute truth. There's just whatever truth, you know it's all over the place. But wait a minute. So I would bring up and I say something like, okay, you went to the bank and you, had, and you knew you had $10,000 in your, in your savings account. And you go up to the teller at the window and you say, I'd like my $10,000. And the teller goes, Just a, just a minute, sir. I got to get the manager. And the manager comes to him and says, You know, I know you want $10,000, but I'm sorry that you only have $200 in here. You go, No, 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 no. I have $10,000 in here. Uh, And what if that bank manager said to you, well, that's your truth. My truth is you only have $200. Is this truth right? Because he has his truth. I'm trying to show you how illogical it is. And if you just use logic, when people say, I have my truth, what they're really saying is their truth, the truth that matters to them is only the one that matters to them. There's all kinds of other things. That, ah, that's your truth. That doesn't matter to them. But things that really matter, oh, they want the truth. My bank account says $10,000. You can't live in a society without truth. Now, when you share with people, you've got to listen. Let me go back. You've got to listen. They're in a system They're going to throw these lines and cliches at you. You got to understand, like, if you grew up playing sports, you study the enemy. You got to know how they're going to go about this because it's very systematic. They do it the same every time. But you got to know how you're going to come back at people and what you're going to say. It's probably going to tick some of them off and they're going to blow up. So at that point, just walk away. You don't need any of that. But at least you decided to share the truth in their life that challenges all the cliches that they're just going to throw at you. Does that make sense? Good. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for the truth. Holy Spirit, thank you that you bring all things to our remembrance. Thank you that we can have answers, logical and biblical Thank you, Jesus, that we can share our faith, that we have a Savior who died, rose, ascended, and is exalted. Thank you. And I pray, Lord, that we're able to rehearse defending our faith at times when the time arises because we're in a season right now where we're basically at a point where they've got the church just shutting up, just don't say anything, and that's wrong because we're John the Baptist and when John the Baptist was asked what he is he said I am a voice I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness make straight the way of the Lord and that's what we are we're a voice we're the voice of God on planet earth but we got to listen and we got to understand how to defend our faith and we got to stay logical and yet use moral foundation and use evidence and all these things to prove our faith God, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that though we live in this system, we're not of this system. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.